Listener Production. It's been eight and a half years since Maz Compton's last drink, and yet drinking is probably what she talks about the most. Maz is the host of podcast Last Drinks and an author of a book by the same name. She is truly passionate about helping people find and embrace their sober selves, as you're about to find out. You will likely recognise Maz Compton from her MTV days interviewing the world's best-loved music makers or the hit New South Wales breakfast show, Maz and Maddie. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where Helen Smith joins me to recommend what to watch, see, eat, do and listen to this weekend. But first, first, here is my conversation with Maz Compton about drinking, drinking culture and what it takes to get out. Hey, Maz Compton, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Hey, thank you so much. This is very exciting. It is exciting. It's so lovely to see you. I've been wanting to chat to you for a really, really long time. And I want to start at the beginning. Were you a kid who grew up listening to the radio? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I remember the day of my year six graduation from primary school. Yeah. Wendy Palmer and Peter Moon woke me up. Amazing. Um, because I used to have an a, a alarm clock with a clock radio and I would set it on Today FM. And the song that played when the radio went off to wake me up was Walking on Sunshine by Casey and the Sunshine Band. And it's just like etched into my memory. I was such a radio kid. And I remember listening to Ugly Phil and the Hot 30. Like I just... I loved consuming radio. Yes, I was a bit of a radio nerd as a kid. (laughs) So what was it about it that you loved? Like were you a a music nerd or were you in it for the celebrity interviews or were you in it for the chat? What sort of drew you to radio over anything else? I think when I was little, I just think my dad used to have the radio on a lot, but he Mm. would have it on boring radio and I found (laughs) cool radio. I loved the banter that I listened to. I love the companionship that radio gave me when I was a kid. Like I had an older brother, but he was kind of off doing his own stuff as a teenager. So I felt like, I don't know, it was my thing, if that makes sense. And then as I got older, I really did love music. I'm not musically talented at all. I'm terrible at karaoke, but I love listening and consuming music. And so I think that it was, you know, it was the entertainment and the music, you know, nerd in me yeah. that loved radio so much. Because you weren't very old when you you landed a job with MTV, were you? Well, you say that. I was 24. Is that old? I feel like that's old. I don't know. I mean, MTV. I don't feel like that's old. That well, sounds very you? young to me. <laughs> but I think the older I get, the younger that seems. <laughs> it's all, yeah. That's all a matter of perspective. It Yeah, it does, right? Because at the time, like, I'd been wanting to do television for eight or so years, right? Yeah. Like I decided, I decided, I decided when I was a teenager, I was going to be on MTV. And then when I was 24, I got that job, right? So it felt like a real slow, long burn for yes. me. But then looking back now, I was like, oh my God, I was only 24 and my brain was not fully developed. <laughs> mm. And I feel like that can be the case with a, a lot of the times when we we see someone who's got a public profile achieve something big and often the perception is, oh, you got that so quickly. Yeah. How did you pull that off? And their perception is, mate, I've been working at this for a really long time. You just didn't notice. 
before. A hundred percent. And I think I, because I, when I was 15, I wrote in my diary that I wanted to be on MTV. And so everything I did sort of after high school really was geared towards like trying to get me a job on television. And what some people don't know is that the year before I got my job at MTV, I I auditioned for a job at MTV and I didn't get that job. Yeah. And so there was like, you know, a bit of disappointment and a bit of, you know, a feeling of failure before I'd even got my big break, you know. And so, which was probably good for me to learn to be resilient considering the industry I ended up in. (laughs) But yeah, everyone's story, there's no such thing as an overnight success. It's just... It's that's the bit of the story that you guys know because that landed me on national television at the age of 24. Yeah. I always think, uh, you know, everyone's uh, kind of living their life or their working life and it probably behind the scenes looks like one of those heart monitors, right? Like big highs, big lows, a bit of in between. Yes. And yet the bit the public sees is generally just those really high points and we're just drawing a line between the top high points. So it looks like a graph that's just going up and up and up and up and up. But when you're doing it, when you're living it, of course, there are joys and disappointments along the way. Yeah, peaks and troughs, swings and roundabouts, all the analogies, they they all (laughs) check out. (laughs) Tell me about interviewing celebrities. And I I get the irony that that's literally what we're doing right now. But (laughs) at 24, you land the dream job that you've been gearing up for since you were 15. And suddenly, like you're interviewing big names if you're on MTV. So how did you prepare for that? And well, my first interview was with Blink-182. Oh my God. I know, right? I came out of the gates swinging. So the way that I think I would overcome this feeling of like, oh, my God, I'm just a normal person. Like, how the hell did this happen? Why am I in this hotel room with this band? Uh, was I over-prepared? So I would do so much yeah. research. I'd listen to the album like three times. I would just do, I would just like over, over-prepare and over-rehearse. I would drive to, so in a junket situation, like if a band was, you know, coming out to do promo, they would usually have their interviews in hotel rooms. So usually you would get your call time, you want to be in hair and makeup at this time, then you need to go to this particular hotel, wait in the lobby for an hour and a half, go up to set up in a particular hotel room while they're in another hotel room with Sunrise, you set up for MTV. Like this is how junkets work. This just became like stock standard bread and butter stuff at my job. But I would just be in the car on the way driving to the hotel, literally pretending that the band was in the backseat of my car, practising my interview with them and making sure that I had, you know, like enough questions about the music, but I was trying to be a little bit funny and I wanted to be edgy and I didn't want to be too nerdy. Like I just (laughs) overanalyzed everything. And that's so funny. You spend hours rehearsing, hours preparing, hours waiting. You do this interview. I did this really fun interview with Blink-182. There was a bit of banter with Mark Hoppus. It was really fun. The guys did a drawing for me and signed it and because it was my first interview. And then out of all of that, literally three and a half minutes of it ends up on national television once. Yeah. And then it is never seen again. Yeah, then it's over. Then it's done. And and so becomes the wave of like ups and downs in television where you're just like riding high and, you know, creating these really amazing moments and then they just vanish, like they're just completely gone. It's quite wild to reflect on. But to answer the question, I was a real nerd about my job and I just took it probably way too seriously. I had a lot of fun doing it, but 
And there were definitely times because I was representing a brand that made sense for me at the time at age 24, I was the face of a pop culture youth brand. I loved 98% of the people that were on our shows. And so the bands that I was interviewing, I had a genuine passion for. As I got a little bit older, I found myself aging out of the demographic of the one that I represented. And that was like this whole other conundrum because I there was, you know, times where I was like, oh, am I, am I getting a bit too old to doing that? But I still love doing it. But like, should I be thinking about maybe, you know, moving on? And so that's a whole thing when you have a dream and it, and you smash it and you mm. fulfill it. And then it's like, well, then what happens when you outgrow the dream? Yeah, then what? Right? Yeah, yeah. So what, what did happen? So... I started drinking. (laughs) Well, I'd been drinking for a while, to be fair. I think, you know, part of the culture that I was in at the time in media, you know, it was you go to events, you go to parties, there's free Yeah, it was a boozy culture, right? Free wine, there's free champagne, so you just drink. And then by the time I was nearly 30, I was like, oh, this drinking thing's kind of becoming a daily occurrence. And I also had this sort of mini life crisis where the, I was married at the time and my marriage imploded. So I ended up going through a divorce and leaving MTV at around the same time. So like divorcing my dream and divorcing my partner at around the same time. And I got offered randomly like a radio job in Adelaide, kind of over a, a two year period, this all sort of manifested. And I ended up living in, moving to Adelaide to do breakfast radio for the very first time with no husband, with no friends, with just like the immediate people in my world and a bottle of red wine. And that is really what I think cemented my dependence on alcohol was dealing with these really big, what I looked at at the time as failings. Like Uh. it's like, well, I didn't have the MTV job forever and I chose to leave, but I felt like I'd failed And then my marriage exploded or imploded, whichever way you want to look at it. And so that felt like a failure too. So I think to deal with those feelings, I, yeah, I just, I lent on alcohol. And so really there becomes that start of alcohol dependence, which is what my whole sobriety journey is birthed from, you know, like I didn't get sober because I wasn't drinking too much. I got sober because I was. How did you get to that realization point because i think a lot of us can can relate to that idea of life's not quite going the way you want it to be going especially being in a new place where you don't know a whole lot of people yeah you're processing what's going to be grief after the loss of a relationship and sometimes grief after the loss of a job mm. i can see how drinking starts to spiral yeah what i'm interested in is how does your brain then make the connection of actually this has gotten to a place where it's not good for me Yeah. Okay. Firstly, I will say that I didn't process my feelings. I avoided them. So, so in order to avoid them, I drank because then I didn't have to deal with stuff. Right. So I, I really did by the time I got to 2014, which was the year I decided I was going to stop drinking. I had just compounded grief. I had, you know, unresolved stuff going on. And I had just, I just was like, I'm going to park it over there because I didn't actually have the tools to do that. So I just mm. drank alcohol and went out and forgot about it and, you know, 
And I, what I realize now is that alcohol became my multi-tool of coping. So whether I had a good day or a long day or I was really busy or really bored, I would just have a drink. And eventually over time, my tolerance increased. So a, a glass became two. Yeah. Two became a bottle. And it got to a point where in 2014, I remember like finishing work, going home via the bottle shop and getting a bottle of Savion Blanc and going, oh, I'll get a bottle of Pinot just in case. And then uh, going, I'm probably going to drink all of that tonight. Uh, and I don't have six people coming over <laughs> for dinner. So I think in, by the time I got to 2014, I was in a situation where I was drinking a lot. It wasn't leaving Las Vegas. It wasn't chaotic. There was no incident, but there was this undertone of, I wish I could stop drinking, but I have no idea how to. And that was the big question was like, how can I exist in this life that I've created for myself that I actually love, that is so great, that looks great on paper, my face is on billboards, I host a drive show, I've got money, I go on these fabulous holidays. All of the things on paper were checking out, but I was like, but I'm drinking all the time. And that just doesn't seem to add up, but I have no idea how to exist in this life I've created for myself without alcohol. And there, from that place, I think I really started to have a few big long chats in the mirror with myself and go, okay, well, why do you think you can't drink this weekend? Because I honestly didn't think I could get through a weekend without alcohol at that point. We fast forwarded now to the point where your radio career is going really well, right? You're at, you're at the top of your game. And yeah. when you are at the top of your game, and it's not just in the media industry, but it's definitely a big part of media, I think, is that there's Mm. quite a boozy culture around celebration and getting together. So was there part of you that sort of felt like part of your success was intertwined with it? Like how do you celebrate success? How do you go out? How do you be part of this world if you don't have a drink in your hand? It was very much, I was terrified of losing my job, basically. That's Mm. the bottom line. I thought, because so much of my job was around alcohol and drinks and going out and events and, you know, like I think I was just running on adrenaline and caffeine and Red Bull at the time. Like there was just so much going on that I did really think I might lose friends and I might lose my job if I don't drink alcohol. Wow. But I got also to a point where I then thought, I am more important than this job in the sense of I should be more worthy and more honest and real with myself and I am not showing up for me. So regardless of how much everyone loves Maz and my radio show, I this is not sustainable. Like I cannot sustain this anymore and I wasn't living from that place of honesty And I really felt like if I kept going down the road that I could see ahead, it was not going to end well. And so because I could see it heading in a negative direction, that's when I kind of, I don't call it a rock bottom, I call it the line in the sand where I decided to do something different 
to get a different result rather than doing the same thing, which was drinking and trying to get a different result. Like I kept waking up on a Saturday with a hangover going, oh, maybe next weekend I won't get hungover. And it's like, well, you're not going to not get hungover if you keep drinking alcohol, you know? And so I, I did have a series of, a sequence of like just real chats with myself in the mirror, like literally in the bathroom mirror, just going, okay, girlfriend, like what's going on here? Why are you so disconnected? Where is your self-compassion? Why do you value other people's opinions of yourself higher than treating yourself with respect? Like all of those things started to kind of creep into my subconscious. And then I think from there, eventually, I just decided to put my big girl pants on and stop drinking for a month to see what my sober self looked like. I didn't stop drinking to prove to myself that I didn't have a drinking problem. And I think that the difference of intention there will garner a different result for people. So what was that month like? So that was January 2015 and it was a bit lonely because I didn't go out heaps because I wasn't drinking and I didn't really know how to go out and not drink. Um, I did a lot of journaling. I ate heaps of maxi bonds because my sugar cravings (laughs) went to the roof. And on about day 22 or 23, I remember waking up and feeling like I was in the matrix because I felt so clear-headed. And it was the first time I'd felt that clear in my mind. Like I felt so sharp in probably all of my adult life. And it was that paradigm shift. I was like, oh, something's happened in my brain here. And maybe it's because I'm not drinking alcohol anymore. And that really led me down the sobriety path of, well, this isn't just a 30-day experiment anymore. This is about discovering what my life could look like without alcohol in it. Because if I'm 22 or 23 days in and someone just switched a light on in my brain, imagine what it would be like if I got to my birthday in March or the middle of the year or 12 months. And now we're looking at eight and a half years sober and I still am reaping those compounded benefits of sobriety, which is why I call sobriety a progressive revelation. It's not just like stop drinking for 30 days and all of your problems will get fixed because Uh. sobriety doesn't actually stop life happening. And by life, I mean the big tough stuff that we drink to avoid dealing with. Like I've still had some really hectic stuff happen in, especially in the last year and a half of my life. But what sobriety has given me is the capacity to actually face it and deal with it rather than just cope with it. This is quite a personal question, so feel free to tell me where to go. You haven't used the word alcoholic. Is there a reason for that? Um, yeah, there, there is. The, it, I don't love that word. I think that the term alcoholic is really outdated and I think that yeah. it's, it's not helpful. We love labels, but the term alcoholic isn't helpful for people who are resonating with my story where they feel like they're just grey area binge drinkers and they're trapped in a blame-shame cycle and it's just because nobody taught them any other way. Yeah. And so in 2014 I actually Googled, am I an alcoholic? And I landed on the AA manifesto and I think that AA is wonderful. I have friends who have been through the program and it does work for some people. But I read the definition of alcoholic and I was like, that isn't me, but I'm not sober. So what am I? Like where, you know, like there's this huge scale between that term and completely sober. And I was somewhere in that middle bit of that scale. And I, you know, I didn't find that I resonated with that word. And I also just feel like it is a bit, it 
I don't think we need to use that word and I don't think we need to talk about people's rock bottoms so much either because there wasn't a rock bottom for me. Like I said, it was just, it was a line in the sand. And I think for a lot of people that's helpful because if you're waiting to hit rock bottom before you decide to do something, you might be waiting a long time and that might be too late. So yeah. for me, it's like we those terms I just don't find are helpful for people who are, who resonate with uh, with my story. We use terms now like alcohol use disorder or alcohol dependence disorder in a medical you know term, but I just really think that the the negative connotations that come up from that word alcoholic are just not useful for people who are reassessing their relationship with alcohol. You are having this conversation in a big way and with some very big names. You've got a podcast called Last Drinks where you've interviewed people like Osha Gunsberg and David Campbell and Yumi Steins. You've got a book called Last Drinks, How to Drink Less and Be Your Best. Talk to me about having this chat with more people because when I think about the kind of drinking you've been talking about, often it's quite private. And Mm. the conversations you talked about having with yourself were were very much conversations you were having alone with your mirror, just with you, not with other people. What's it been like talking to other people about it? And not just talking to other people, but talking to them with thousands of people listening. Yeah. So the reason why I called the podcast Last Drinks was because your last drink is the start of your sobriety. And what I have found is that no two stories are the same. Like everybody's sobriety journey really is as unique as their fingerprint. In saying that, I really did think that, you know, my story was completely unique to me in the sense that I was drinking a bit too much and a bit too often and I didn't know how to stop. That's a common thread. So most of the people who I talk to on the podcast get to that point where they're like, yeah, it wasn't chaotic. Yeah, it wasn't leaving Las Vegas. But I just didn't want to do this anymore because it wasn't serving me. And so at some point through their own unique series of events and revelations and paradigm shifts and conversations, they got to a place where they decided to have their last drink, which is where I start our conversation. And then we kind of cycle back and forth through the story of like, well, what sort of a drinker were you? Like how problematic did it get? Did it implode your relationship? You know, and then after your last drink, what did you find challenging about sobriety? What was surprising to you, you know? And 100% of the people who I've talked to about their sobriety have said that it was a good idea. (laughs) There hasn't been one person that has said, you know what, I got sober and then I went, nah. (laughs) Everyone has said it's the best thing that they've done for a myriad of reasons. And I think the reason why the podcast is resonating with so many people is because There's such a variety of stories. There's, you know, there are the media personalities that you mentioned, but also there's my friend that owns a yoga studio who we used to kick Uh. around together when we both lived in Sydney, you know, and there's one of my friends who I used to work with um, at one of the radio stations that I used to work at and, and we haven't been in touch for years but reconnected through sobriety. There's people who I've never met and it's the first conversation I've ever, ever had with them and from you know, mums to business people to athletes to I've interviewed an ex-Olympian. Like there's so many different threads that tie together this sobriety story that I am really trying to, you know, get the word out there that 
anyone's sobriety is worth sharing. Maz, thank you so much for sharing your story and telling us a little bit about you and your life and your journey to sobriety. Thank you for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Jamila, what an absolute treat. Thank you so much for your time. I'm just so passionate about sobriety for people because I truly feel like it's a superpower. I really Uh, honestly feel like I say this, I'm like sobriety won't make life stop happening as in there's still tough stuff that comes up, but it does give you an opportunity to get the best out of whatever hand you get dealt in life. And I think that that is such an important message for someone who's struggling right now. That's it for my conversation with Maz Compton. Maz's book, Last Drinks, How to Drink Less and Be Your Best, is available right now at any good bookstore or online via Booktopia. And if after that conversation, you're concerned that alcohol might be a problem for you or that it might be harming you or someone you know, then maybe it's time to seek some advice from a professional you can head to drinkwise.org.au and they have phone numbers that you can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week in every state and territory. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up next. Helen Smith is here because it is Weekend List time and we're excited to bring you all some suggestions for the weekend ahead. Helen, what have you been watching, eating, listening to, doing? What have you got for everyone? Okay, so my first recommendation is a three-part series on Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it's a doco series on Netflix. And I came into this very, like, with some... Skepticism, maybe? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure what to think because I'd heard, like, a, the Shameless podcast did a did a little series on, on Arnold and a little scandal series, and I was like, oh, my gosh, like, whoa. Like, I, I didn't know if I liked this person. And then I watched the series and I thought, wow, there is no denying Arnold did not work hard. Like this is one of the hardest working celebrities portrayal that I've seen in a while. Just the way he worked on his body was insane. And I was like, okay, it's very biased towards Arnold, but I mean, it's a doco series about him. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. But it was actually really interesting and go into it with a bit of critical thinking. Like you've got to go into things thinking like that. But no, I really enjoyed it and I do recommend it. If you just want to know more about his life, if you know about bits and pieces like, you know, being a politician and the scandals with um, his son, it's very interesting. So I recommend, but with a grain of salt, I think. I feel like that was almost like a one foot in each camp recommendation, which I appreciate because I think I've probably got one foot in each camp about watching it. But I think I think I am in after that very cautious recommendation. I have a recommendation with no caution, folks. This one, I'm throwing all my weight behind. I finally, I really should have watched this sooner. I finally got around to watching She Said on Netflix. And it is a really interesting, dramatic portrayal of the investigation into Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. And it's sort of, it's told with the lens of the journalists at the New York Times, the reporters, Megan Tui and Jodie Cantor, who were the people who broke the story. 
broke the story I use in in slightly couched terms because it had been talked about in whispers in Hollywood for years and years that this very powerful filmmaker who made these movies that would make millions and millions of dollars at the box office and get nominated for Oscars was actually a serial sexual predator and that his abuses were covered up by his studio and were done so in an almost systematic kind of way. I really enjoyed the film. I think I obviously am someone who's interested in the subject matter, but I thought it was really beautifully done. It's got a bit of a all the president's men for the modern era kind of kind of vibe. You sort of see behind the scenes of what investigative reporting is really like, that it's not glamorous, that it leads to a lot of disappointment and dead ends and people who won't go on the record. There's a lot of sort of drudgery to it. And the drudgery probably sits to the front and and the idea of making change often feels really painful and really exhausting. I was watching it and thinking the whole time how rare it would be for a journalist to actually be given the kind of space and time to devote to a project like this. And it also sort of made me wonder how many investigations go uninvestigated (laughs) uh, that deserve to be because the money is just not there in the media anymore to do this kind of work very often. But I'm so glad that these two women journalists did do it. And this is a really great portrayal and a portrayal that feels like you're watching a movie. So it's it's incredibly watchable, but it's actually a, a dramatic representation of, of something that really has happened. Yeah, that's such a good point about the resources in journalism nowadays. And yeah, it, it is interesting to think, hmm, I wonder what else is out there. It's probably a lot. I've given you an impossible segue, haven't I, Helen? (laughs) Tell them about the disco ball. Yeah, my next recommendation is a disco ball. Buy yourself a disco ball. They, I'm just, you know, we associate (laughs) disco balls with, you know, a party or like you've only got a disco ball when you're, you know, you're, you're out or like something really, an event or just something like to celebrate. But why not just get a disco ball, celebrate every day, and it just brightens up your space if you can hang it up like a traditional one or just use it as decor, like put it in front of the window and it just sparkles. And it is my most favourite thing. I've finally caved. I went to Kmart. I bought my $12 disco ball, big one too, like good size disco ball. And I'm just obsessed. I, I've been taking photos of it, showing it to all my girlfriends, being like, Guys, look, look at this. You, we all need one. I'm, I'm tempted to just go buy them for my friends. I think everyone needs a disco ball in their life, whether it's in your bathroom or it's just in your bedroom just or even put it in your kitchen. I just think it's the best thing in the world. So, yeah, that is, that's my right. Oh, my God, Helen, I love that so much. And that's a lot of disco ball for your dollar. I'm very impressed. Well done on, of course, nabbing a bargain uh, on your disco ball search. Folks, we're giving ourselves yet another impossible segue. It's been a really big week in politics uh, for a number of reasons, but the most significant of which is that the legislation that means we will go to a referendum on the voice to parliament has passed, uh, which means that that vote will be had by all Australians who are entitled to the vote. All of us who are 18 or over will get a chance to have our say sometime later this year when we'll go to the polls. And I felt like it was a good time to remind everyone who either has never read it or has not read it for some time to go back and revisit the Uluru Statement from the Heart. This statement was, of course, released back in in 2017, 
by the delegates to the First Nations National Constitutional Convention that was held over four days um, right near Uluru. And it is very short. You'll be surprised by how short it is. And it essentially calls on the Australian people to walk with First Nations people towards reconciliation and to the creation of some sort of Indigenous voice to move us towards a place where this country could embrace a treaty with its First Peoples and that we could enable truth-telling in this country about our history and about our past. It is so short, everyone. It'll take you five or six minutes to read it. It is so beautifully written. It is succinct and clever. And I feel like if you're going to vote, if you're 18 and over and you're an Australian citizen, you will be voting in this referendum later in the year then you should read the call for it in the first place and why First Nations people thought that it was something worth exploring before you make up your mind how you're going to vote. So if you just Google Uluru Statement from the Heart, it will it will come up. won't take you long to read, but I really recommend that you do. And um, Jam, we've also got, we've well, got with our briefing, we have a bunch of different episodes as well on the voice and surrounding it with lots of amazing First Nations people. So if you do want to have a listen and have another deep dive into it, We've got a bunch on there as well that you can check out on the briefing podcast. You will never go wrong by scrolling back in your briefing podcast feed. There's a whole lot of gold back there, everyone. You've just got to go do a little bit of digging. Thank you for your time this week. We've so appreciated having your company. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode of the weekend briefing or indeed the weekday briefing, then you should download the listener app and you can follow us there or you can follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got a moment today, why not leave us a beautiful five-star rating and a kind review? Helen and I will smile and it'll make us really cheerful on what is quite gloomy weather at the moment. You could do that for us, folks. We would appreciate it. We'll be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.